Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Autonomous Health Podcast. I'm your host, Anmol Madar, and today with me is Dr. Keita Nair, a healthcare executive and leader and author of the, the most recent Wall Street Journal bestseller, Dead Wrong. Dr. Nair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Anmol. Dr. Nair, we usually start by hearing about people's journey and what brought them here. Um, and so maybe we can do some quick introductions, tell us about yourself, and, and then we'll also segue into what made you want to go write this book, and we'd love to hear more about it. Sure, that sounds great. Well, gosh, I have to tell you, I definitely didn't go to medical school thinking I was going to work for the phone company, let alone write a book. So like everything, it was a happy accident. But, but ultimately, what drove me into medicine and tech was the disconnect that we all understand, your viewers understand. And I'm of the generation of physicians that was in my training at the time when we went from paper to digital. So I saw very clearly the sort of old school paper world to the digital world. And as I was going through that journey, I said, this is going to be the future. And I went to business school and I started to understand business and technology and finance. And I also understood as a disenfranchised doctor at the time that doctors were not getting their voice, right? You really had to understand business. You really had to understand where technology was going. And I saw that as my way to impact the industry at scale in a much bigger way than just individual physician care. Yeah. And then most recently you, you were at Salesforce. Yes. And you were helping shape a lot of their healthcare vision and strategy. And what was that experience like? It was wonderful. Salesforce is an amazing company. And on top of a new technology, relatively new technology in healthcare, yeah. uh, CRM, unheard of, right? Before pandemic became incredibly relevant during the pandemic. I'm very proud of that work. But on top of that, being in charge of 80,000 employees, so I was pulled not just on the health tech side, yeah. but then also as a big employer to help with the health of our employers globally. And that was a tremendous responsibility and experience that I had really never had, but very much deployed technologies to get people in the office, out of the office, yeah. educated, uh, access to resources. So it was, it was a phenomenal experience. I talk a little bit about it in the book. And uh, Salesforce, I have to say, I'm just really proud of how we led through that very difficult time. Yeah, and, and just to connect the dots for folks listening, uh, you know, all of us were in, in different large companies at the time. Our first name was a company called Teladoc. And every week, our chief medical officer at the time would send an email as like there was just groundbreaking new insights, vaccinations, be, you know, vaccines being developed, uh, you know, guidelines and vaccinations, guidelines on, on masks. All these things were happening. And not only were the governments being responsible, but each company also had to kind of shape their own strategy and, and, all, and figure out which offices are we keeping open this week or what are we doing? So I, I totally can only imagine the complexity of that for a, a global corporation of 80,000 people. So thanks for your leadership there. I'm, I'm sure Salesforce team appreciates it. So you've spent a ton of time building and shaping companies in healthcare, and then something led you to go write a book about misinformation in healthcare. And what was that inflection point, Dr. G? And then tell us about the book. And I had a chance to read it as well, so I can share some of the things that stood out for me. But uh, tell us about your journey. Tell us, tell us about the book and, and some of the incredible stories you have in there. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks so much for reading it, Mo. That really means a lot. <laughs> I hope you liked it. Um, I loved it. I loved it. I thought the stories were incredible, the human stories were. You know, I think that really what made the book stand out for me. Thank you. But I'll scatter my, my inputs in there as you go through. I want to hear yours. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I welcome your inputs to the second book. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's the story of healthcare. It is the human stories, right? And, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned your own chief medical officer. So at Salesforce, we had a stand-up call every week, a global stand-up call every week. 
And I was always on that call, not just to email people, but to answer questions, to give the latest in facts, and also trying to stay up with global guidelines that were different and different cultural norms. And what struck me at the time was exactly that, how misinformed and disinformed our employees were, their neighbors, their friends and families that were influencing them. And I realized that so much of my role was translating being the translator of complicated healthcare information, living in a time where science was also being politicized, different misfits were sort of taking advantage of the situation. But what I understood and what really struck me at the time and what was my inspiration for the book is I trained at a time in George Washington in DC at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And it was a time as a young doctor where you're very thrilled to, to be a physician and you're trying to learn everything you can and you're in it for the science and to save lives. And every other patient that I was touching at the time was dying from preventable deaths, dying from AIDS, which is now, HIV is now a chronic disease, right? Here we are almost a lifetime later. And what struck me was the, the parallels, the parallels to mis and disinformation, the stigma, the cost, the stakes were so high with HIV AIDS, very similar to COVID-19. And I felt that history could not possibly be repeating itself. Like, was anyone seeing this the way I was seeing it? And so it really inspired me to write the book to say, this has been a timeless issue in healthcare from the beginning of time, whether you're talking about the bubonic plague, vaccines, myths around pregnancy, fertility, you name it. You, you and I come from the South Asian households where ginger, turmeric, right? That's security cancer. Yeah. So how do you empower people? And how do you, as a healthcare leader, actually ensure that you are dealing with this undercurrent that ultimately is what ends people up in the ER, right? Which ultimately is the anti-value-based care, right? Because if someone doesn't understand what a mammogram is, guess what? They not only don't get a mammogram, but they get breast cancer, right? So this is all connected. The mis and disinformation undercurrent that is existing in today's world has to be addressed. And if not in a post-pandemic world where we've lived through this incredibly historic time, then when? Yeah right? Then when when will we address it? And Dr. G, I mean, you had some great examples, right? So you talk about your personal journey with this person uh, who was diagnosed with HIV, and I, and I love that story. But also even today, you connect the dots over the last like several decades. What is your intuition about the, the root cause of this? Why has there always been, um, you know, call it misinformation or, or perhaps even politicalization of your know, sort of medical knowledge? Or is it for, like, what drives, is it just human behavior? Is that why it's existed since history? Is there something about the science or, or the field that's hard to understand as a layperson, as a, as a person who's not trained as a doctor? What do you think is the, the underlying root cause? So it's all of the above. And I touch on this a little bit in the book to say, look, when things are confusing, when things are scary, people feel comforted, yeah. right? They feel comforted in the masses. They feel comfortable. They feel comforted with an explanation because it is so scary and it is so, the stakes are so high, right? Your, your own body, your own health, it, it makes you vulnerable, right? And it's scary. So we often look for comfort either in our community, someone we're following on social media. There are a lot of sort of behavioral components to it, which I would say are human behavior. But I also think in today's age, in the absence of healthcare, and we know the disconnect in healthcare, right? If you try to get an appointment with the doctor today, depending where you are in the country, it can take three to six months. So in the absence of a leader or a trusted partner in your healthcare, there are so many people out there profiting, whether they're selling you a $500 vitamin, the next anti-aging cream, the weight loss drug of your choice, right? There's so much profit to be made in disinformation, which is the intentional manipulation of people for profit, whether political, financial, or otherwise, that 
we as a healthcare industry have not taken control. Instead, we say, oh, marketing is, is cute. It's not academic, right? Patient engagement, it's important. But where does disinformation lend itself in that strategy, right? And we talk about physician burnout. This is also why physicians are burnt out, right? When you go to the emergency room constantly and you're dealing with patients who tell you, hey, I don't trust you. How much money do you make every time I take this medication? These are conversations I had repeatedly during COVID. These are conversations I had during HIV AIDS. You, doctor, are wrong, right? So these are all underlying currents of all the major issues that we face today, whether it's burnout, staff shortages, patient acquisition, retention, value-based care. It all comes to a head with this underlying issue because healthcare is a services business. People have questions and they're coming to the healthcare system for that knowledge, that expertise, that personal attention to their personal health problem. And we've let them down. And dis and misinformation grow in the dark. In our absence, there are so many people profiting off of the absence of healthcare leadership here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's a really good explanation of why it's existed and why it continues to exist today. Um, you had a sentence in the book that I that I highlighted as I was kind of reading through it. And it said something about and maybe this is more about the, the last decade or two versus the, the last maybe 40, 50 years, is, is as you look at misinformation, technology often plays a role. And as a technologist, you know, that kind of stood out to me. And can you elaborate on, on that thinking, Dr. G, and tell us about what you mean by that? And are you referring to social media? Are you referring to technology in the broader way? And I think for technologists like myself who are, who have entered healthcare or, or are maybe listening to this podcast and want to enter healthcare, I think it's important to be aware of like what the technologies do well and what they don't do well. So it's, it's, it's almost like helpful for us to understand where you're coming from there. Absolutely. And look, I consider myself both a technologist and a physician. So I say that as both a technologist and a physician. Yeah. So number one, when we, when we think about this at any enterprise, whether we're talking about the hospital, the payer, the life sciences, med tech company, the world, you and I both operate in, who is in charge of the mis- and disinformation strategy? Right. Is it the chief marketing officer? Is it the CIO? Is it the chief medical officer? And is anyone even asking that question? So that's number one. And you and I know the answer to that is no one. Yeah. No one is asking this question. Yeah. Now, there are many people in charge of patient acquisition, retention, brand loyalty, physician burnout, EHR optimization, value-based care, risk contracting, right? So we are ignoring the undercurrent, number one. And in that absence, we've let the consumer down, right? Number one. Number two, we think of marketing and communications as separate from clinical operations, health tech optimization. We think of them as separate instead of as combined. Because how can you be in part, how can you be in charge of patient acquisition, patient engagement, brand loyalty, patient retention, revenue for the hospital, value-based care, yeah. and not say, why are people confused and not coming to us? Or why are they coming so late to the ER when they could have come in for a mammogram, they could have come in for a colonoscopy, et cetera. So those are, those are a couple of things. But the other piece to it is we have a physician burnout and staff shortage problem. So if you truly have a partner in your healthcare, right? And I talk about the beautiful use case with the Cleveland Clinic where they hit this straight on and said, you know, we have some of the world experts at our organization. How do we highlight them, but not make them marketers because they're doctors? How do we as marketing work with clinical to highlight their expertise, scale it with a partnership with YouTube, and then drive revenue to the hospital system? Drive revenue, get people in for appointments, get people out, get them in time before they go to the ER and before they have a chance to be inspired by Dr. Misfit on TikTok. Right, because the reality is the consumer of today wants everything at their convenience and where they're at. And healthcare is anything but convenient and everywhere but where you're at. 
And to unpack that example just a little bit, right? I think if I'm connecting the dots on what you just said, Dr. G, consumers have decided that they're searching for the information on TikTok, on Google, in the App Store, right? And I think that ship has sailed in every industry, not just healthcare, over probably the last 10 years since that ship has happened. And is so, is so your advice then is that instead of sort of a random person going off and, and giving uh, medical advice, in many cases on some of these channels, is, is having healthcare organizations really understand that they should be building experiences that engage consumers on those channels. Exactly. And like accepting that that's where the world is and people aren't sitting in the waiting room, you know, hoping to kind of learn something after an hour waiting. Is, is that the advice? Absolutely. It's how to harness the technologies we have out there just like all of those disinformation gurus, the amount of profits that are being gained by these misfits, the amount of politicians benefiting off of the very smart, intelligent use of technology to garner and inspire support and a following, healthcare needs to do the same. And we've not taken the time to do it. We've not thought it was a priority. Look, we developed a global innovation, a groundbreaking innovation in nine months. An mRNA vaccine, never been done in history, nine months flat. And then what happened? To this day, we can't get people to take the shot, right? So what have you really done when you have the world's cutting edge technology that you've developed that is historical in every way, but you've ignored the human factor, which is people don't trust the system. People don't believe, you know, in the science, right? So hospitals have to look at their ecosystem providers, insurance companies. They have to say, how do we empower the KOLs? How do we garner the trust between patients and doctors and use technology as an asset? Look, and there are plenty of pockets of this success, whether it's the Cleveland Clinic or you name the dermatologists or the orthopedists on TikTok with those cool dance moves and cool music. They have inspiring followings, but they're also accountable. Because here's the thing, those doctors are out there building their business, but they're also saying, if it doesn't work out, you can see me. I'm responsible for you, right? I'm responsible for this information. Yeah. The misfits that are out there don't have that accountability and we've not regulated it. We've really very much are, are out there as, as cowboys in the wild, wild west. But if we take the time as healthcare leaders to look at the technology, understand the human factor, no one should question the science. No one should question where to go for their healthcare. And in, in a time where a physician shortage and a nursing shortage is real, This is the time to optimize technology to complement the staff. This is the time where value-based care couldn't be more important. Yeah. Couldn't be more important. And what's been the missing ingredient for for hospitals in that example? Like, I mean, obviously, Cleveland Clinic was a great example in the book, but for the average hospital system or healthcare system, are they missing the expertise? It is a cultural issue. Is it like resistance to change because they've been an incumbent in, in an industry, you know, that's kind of done things a certain way when it comes to talking to consumers or patients? What do you think has been the missing ingredient and what advice would you have for people listening to this podcast? I think it's all of the above with competing priorities, right? In, in a time where we're all being asked to do more with less, I think it's competing priorities. But I also think it's exactly what I said, which is we developed this vaccine. We were so focused on the science. We developed this amazing vaccine. Then we focused on how to distribute it. But we didn't do the last mile, which was to get people ready for it, build the trust, build the health literacy around it. So I think it's still very much that missing the forest for the trees, which is there is no one in the boardroom asking, what is our mess and disinformation strategy? How are we competing with that doctor on TikTok selling $500 vitamins? When you've got a copay for 50 bucks, we're happy to do a colonoscopy for you, right? We've not done a good job of understanding the human factor and prioritizing it. Right. And now when we talk about artificial intelligence, no one's saying that. 
how do we use AI to actually educate people, to actually triage people, to convert the chatbot into an appointment or convert the chatbot into a social media follower? And how, uh, you know, I think the ultimate other piece to it, Anmol, is we work in silos in healthcare, right? The bigger the organization, the more silos. The idea that the chief marketing officer, chief medical officer, chief information officer should work together, I only saw that happen really well during COVID. At the time of crisis, even personally at Salesforce, worked so closely with the chief marketing officer because everything they were putting out to our employees and to our customers and partners, they wanted to make sure it was scientifically yeah. credible yeah. and up to date for the time. And it's funny you say that. I've seen the same in my career, right? It's like often they're just part of these different areas yeah. and the chief marketing officer goes and runs a whole bunch of stuff here and it's sort of disconnected from the chief medical officer or vice versa and they're part of these different different parts of the business even sometimes but that's not the case it's the same consumer correct and the message is bringing them in the door and the experience they have getting clinical care are so tightly interlinked and by the way are interlinked to the clinical outcomes they see downstream and the economic ROI generated in the value-based care environment so I think that I think that the message sort of really hits home here in the book and, and what you're describing I want to go a little bit deeper into this idea of personalization personalized care Right. And I think there's sort of two views on this and, and maybe you agree with both, maybe you disagree with both. So I'm kind of curious how you would approach it. So one view is, I think, you know, uh, I, I have a thesis and I think we've seen this in our careers as well, which is when you have personalized care in healthcare settings, it can be incredibly powerful, right? I've seen this in behavioral health. There's thousands of different content, you know, exercises you can send a person, picking the right three to get them to engage incredibly valuable in, in having them find value in that product and that experience and then drive behavior change, constantly drive better management of symptoms over time. On the same piece, I think outside of healthcare, you know, it's funny, I was at, a, at an MIT event uh, a few months back speaking and, and I kept using the word personalization. Everybody was kind of like upset about it because outside of healthcare, it's actually a negative connotation in some industries because social media and like these pockets of information that people go deep into and to some degree when you think of the polarization in sort of popular culture that's happened it's almost because it's hyper personalization and people aren't exposed to a different viewpoint or, or the breadth of the experience and they're going down a very narrow path and so how do you see these technologies playing a role in healthcare where do you think they're uh, valuable tools where do you think we should institute safeguards uh, any any advice or thoughts there as you've been doing the research for the book and thinking about this topic for a while now well i think we're far away from having that problem in healthcare yeah. but yeah. i agree with you I, I think as i i am just as excited about artificial intelligence as everyone else in the industry yeah. but i also very much understand the the power that it can be used for for misfits, again, and, and not for people genuinely concerned about the patient, right? I think mis- and disinformation can travel much faster with artificial intelligence if not implemented correctly. Yeah. And I also think there are just ethical things we have to consider. There's so much that we're still learning about AI, and I think to pretend that we know it all you know, would, be a, would be a big mistake. Yeah. So I do think there's a regulatory component. I do think there's a component of us sharing best practices as we go and doing this very differently. You know, I spend time in the book talking about the high tech act and how, you know, the things that went wrong with EHR implementation, right. it's very much how we have to think about AI. As much as we think AI is new and amazing, we also both know that AI has been around for a really long time. It's just becoming kind of the realization of it and the opportunities with it are coming now to a head and every household is now talking about it. But we have to think about it like any new technology, whether it's the internet, the EHR, we have to have stakeholder engagement, whether on the clinical side, the patient side, the government side, we have to be very thoughtful about how we implement this in healthcare, because I think there's tremendous opportunity. There's also a tremendous opportunity to set us back if we don't do it correctly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's. Do you have uh, advice or insights on how how much of that happens inside um, healthcare companies? How much of that happens inside tech companies? And what happens inside the regulators and, and sort of the government side, public policy side of it? I mean, what any thoughts on like how those those three different pieces come together? Knowing what we know about what we learned from the meaningful use experience, the history of misinformation that we're aware of now, advice or, or ways you'd structure it? All of the above. We have to all work together and get that engagement, but ultimately it will be the government regulatory bodies that I think are accountable. because They're accountable for the population. Look, so much of social media, we left to social media companies to regulate. We are still operating in a really unregulated industry in social media. You can't really turn to a company that profits off of engagement and expect them to really police this issue correctly, right? At the same time, their inputs, their understandings of the algorithms, their understanding of what drives behavior are really critical to understand. And so there is an opportunity to collaborate. And I don't genuinely think anyone wakes up thinking they want to cost someone their life, yeah. right? I don't think you know any of the social media companies are thinking, how can we do that? But they are thinking about their profits and how to operate their business. So how can you do this in this collaborative way that truly sets the tone and does this course correction from the beginning. Because so much of what we try to correct now from the EHR implementation, it's just too late. And we have really burned out our physicians and we've lost their trust. And once you lose trust, it's very difficult to gain it back. And if there's anyone that we need on this AI journey, it's the doctors and the nurses. They will best understand where this technology belongs, where it can be harmful, where it's unethical. So including them is going to be really key to how AI gets implemented and adopted correctly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you know one of the mistakes that we make as technologists uh, is we sort of get really excited about what the technology can do. And we sometimes don't think through the consequences of that. And so like you know, just a couple of examples that are, that are sort of related, but you know, there's been a lot of press in the last couple of weeks as we're recording this with self-driving cars in San Francisco. And we're trying to find the right boundary of like, what, do, what, is, you know, what are these cars allowed to do? What areas do we work in? And it's a tricky boundary to set, I think, whether you're the self-driving car company or the regulator, because the technology is kind of going up and down, you know, moving around as it evolves and learns pretty quickly. And also we don't have enough evidence or data to know where it works well and where it doesn't. We're still sort of learning in some regard. And so at what point do you draw that other bar? At what point do you draw the kind of like, hey, we can work with this level of accuracy? And I think like with AI applications, I think there's the operational use cases, which I think everybody agrees is sort of lower risk and there are things that we can kind of create as safeguards. But when we start thinking about the clinical use cases, right, what will it take, you know, is there the first kind of, you know, unregulated machine learning diagnosis of a condition that a person uses to go make some choices about their life or treatment? And at what point does that sort of really come back and, and bite the entire industry and force us to sort of rethink the role of these technologies, right? So I think, I think their point earlier defining those boundaries and safeguards today and perhaps being a little bit more thoughtful, you know, than we would be otherwise and just sort of saying, hey, where do we want these models to play and how do we create the right safeguards for them? I think this is essential and crucial as we go forward. So I totally agree with that. And then, you know, just a, a little bit more about, you know, the, the book. I just wanted to highlight it's been an incredible success, right? And so Wall Street Journal bestseller, Yes News. Tell us about your journey writing a book. And then in particular, what stood out for me was you had uh, some incredible people coming in and saying nice things about the book. And so including Ariana Huffington, we had uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you know, people who are in the world of media, right? People who, who often are talking about wellness and healthcare in our society. What was that experience like? And, and you know, how was it kind of doing that whole journey of putting these ideas on paper and telling the story? Thanks, Amal. I mean, it's, it's still a journey, right? I'm still sort of pinching myself. I just got back from 
Middle East and Spain, it's really neat to also see the global recognition. But it actually just validates my ultimate hypothesis when, when writing the book, which is that this is a global phenomenon. And the human factor is a shared experience. It doesn't matter where you sit in the world. And we all have families. We all have children. We all have parents. So it affects us equally. It's been amazing to collaborate and have the opportunity to, to get the support of Sanjay Gupta, Ariana Huffington, Soledad O'Brien, Anna Navarro. And I worked really hard for those endorsements because I felt like it was important because these are the people on the global stage, right? I mean, you have Dr. Gupta reporting daily on CNN, right? Soledad O'Brien known for her journalistic integrity. Yeah. Anna Navarro, a Republican, but constantly calling out many of uh, the, the right-wing uh, politicizations of mis- and disinformation. And Ariana Huffington, you see her out there doing her work with Thrive, focused on wellness, focused on prevention. And so it really was a very thoughtful and deliberate uh, ask of them. And I just continue to be very humbled by, by the opportunity to have and invite people to this discussion. But ultimately, my hope is to inspire people into action, right? Inspire your viewers into action to ask the question, of, hey, you know, what, what is patient engagement if we're not looking at this issue? And what is EHR optimization? And what is value-based care if we're not looking at this issue? Because this is the issue of our time. And if you are someone living in a post-pandemic healthcare world, you have to head, you have to hit this head on. If not now, when? It's that simple. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. Once again, a great session with Dr. Keita Nair, author of the book, Dead Wrong. Hope you pick up a copy as you're listening to this podcast. And I'm your host, Anwar Madan. Have a great afternoon. Bye.